And thank you all for being here this morning. <clears throat> We're continuing our study on the Godhead, and we've been looking at the Lord Jesus Christ over the past several weeks, and we know He's a part of the triune God, uh, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And, and unless we take a chance of forgetting, which one of those three are God? All three are. Which, one, which one's most God? They're co-equal, right? Yes, there you go. Yeah, there you go. Uh, quite a few years ago, uh, my uncle's grandson was probably, I don't know, four or five years old, and he took him out for breakfast one morning, and the waitress came over and said, do you want sausage, bacon, or ham? He said, yes. And the same is true about God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, God the Son, they're all three the Godhead. Our text verse, again, this week is Matthew 11, verses 20 through 30. Anybody want to read that? Thank you, Brother Dan. What a, what a wonderful verse. How many have heard that verse before, not counting last week? All right. Uh, we've almost got it memorized. Uh, one of our hymns we sing refer uh, to the particular passage here in Matthew. And what a great invitation we have from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, again, I'm studying uh, one of uh, A.W. Pink's study guides, and uh, the title that he put is The Call of Christ. And that fits pretty well. Uh, but I see it more like an invitation. Now, the problem is we've heard that verse so many times. Uh, we've even sung about it. Uh, Sometimes we take it for granted that we really understand uh, the complete meaning of that verse. And, and it's true about other verses as well. But just because we can quote a verse, does it mean we really understand the depth of it? Not necessarily, okay? There's a lot more there than just uh, on the surface, I think. And again, it's one thing to... Uh, to know a verse, or at least be acquainted with it, uh, to be able to repeat the words, uh, but it's an, quite another to enter into the meaning or the sense of that verse. How does it fit in our lives? Now, again, uh, we're going to look at detail as we started again last week, but it's important that we uh, make a, at least a, a good effort to try... Uh, to determine the coherence of one phrase or one clause to another. And that's important if we're going to understand not only this passage, but any passage we're looking at uh, in the Word of God. Now, the problem is if we don't look at it that way, there's a danger that we pervert the true meaning of that verse. And we, we certainly don't want to uh, do that. And sometimes we are guilty, and I'm guilty of that as well, of only quoting a small part of a verse or a small part of a passage. And we sometimes quote the part we like real well, but we miss the part that is a little bit more difficult to swallow, a little bit more difficult because it requires obedience. And so we have here in Matthew 11:28, we have an invitation. And I love the invitation. But we certainly can't miss the conditions or the qualifying terms that Jesus uses in this passage. So the invitation is to all to come. There's no doubt about that. Now, it's also interesting. Uh, when we, the, you know, Jesus said, come unto me. So when you agree, and I know this is rather simple, he's, it's really saying, come unto Christ. Come unto me. Of course, he's Christ. That's who's speaking here. And uh, so we do have an invitation. And again, he is the Son of God, and he is our Lord and Master. And we mentioned last week, he's also Prince and Prophet. But all of these things certainly are involved in the one who is calling us to come. But also understand this is not an unconditional promise. This is a conditional promise that Jesus makes. And if we don't understand the 
the things we have to meet, we make it an unconditional promise, which is not, okay? Because the bottom line is this, we cannot find that rest unless we take his yoke upon us and unless we learn of him. Now notice again in, in, in these verses, it begins with, come unto me, I will give you rest. And we talked about this last week in detail. We're not going to go that far today. Uh, and then in the last part of verse 1, I says, Ye shall find rest unto your soul. So the question I ask again, who is giving the invitation? Christ is. This is a divine invitation. He is the one who's saying, come unto me. So it's interesting. This is the sovereign God speaking. And he says, if you'll come unto me, I will give you. Now think about that. I will give you. Now, according to what we're saying here tonight and what we're reading, would you agree that if we're going to find rest for our souls, we've got to come to him? No doubt about it. So we see there... Divine sovereignty. Jesus said, I will give it to you. But then in the last part of verse 29, Jesus said, you will find rest. And there we see human responsibility. Okay, again, let's make sure we understand this. Jesus gives the invitations. He gives us a way to find rest. And the only way to do that is to come to him whose responsibility is that. It's ours. It is ours. So he's the giver of the rest, no doubt about that. But we can't miss the conditions that we have to meet if we are going to find that rest. Now again, who's the invitation to? Everyone. It is open to all. It is freely given. But only those who come will experience the benefits of that invitation. Uh, <laughs> have you ever been invited to something you wish you hadn't have been? Come on. <laughs> we all have. My friend, this is the best invitation in the world. Come unto me, and I will give you rest. Now, we began looking at this last week, but in order to really understand any given passage, and it's true about our passage here in Matthew 11, about finding rest for our souls. We have to understand the context. What was going on around the situation at that time? Well, we mentioned last week the first couple of verses of Matthew 11, verses 2 and 3. Uh, tell us about, G- about John the Baptist. He's been thrown in prison, about ready to be literally lose his head, and he's concerned about did we do wrong? Should we look for another Messiah? So he expresses his concerns. Now, first of all, who was John the Baptist? A prophet. Would you say he was just a prophet? Yeah, special prophet. You're right, Dan. But he wasn't the Christ. But he was a special man of God. So, as we, and of course, we didn't read the verse tonight. We read it last week. But wouldn't you agree he's showing some doubt? You see the Christ? Or should we look for another one? What's that tell us? He's not sure. He's human, just like we are, okay? Now, again, uh, some people say, wow, he, John the Baptist, he would do that. Uh, you know, the man that, of the hour, the one who preached uh, repentance, the one who baptized at the Jordan, uh, the one who called the Pharisees hypocrites and a brood of vipers. He doubts? Well, the fact of the matter, he was human like we are. And we all doubt from time to time. But here's what's interesting. Uh, we, we talk about his concern. Jesus, beginning in, in verse 7 through 15, we're not going to read it again tonight, but he vindicates John the Baptist, okay? He vindicates him. In fact, he says, among men born among, among women, there's no one greater than John the Baptist. And Dan, you're absolutely right. He was a prophet, but he was a special prophet. He came to prepare the way of the Lord. And so Jesus vindicates him. 
And then in uh, verses 16 through 19, uh, Jesus begins to reprove those who were privileged not only to be under John the Baptist's ministry, but also to hear the preaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in verses 16 through 19, uh, we find that this is a very cynical, uh, a very skeptical uh, generation. Uh, they were so depraved that uh, they accused of John of uh, being demon-possessed. Uh, they accused Christ of being a, a glutton and a, and a wine-bibber. Which one of those are true? None of them. None of those fit those to Jesus Christ or John the Baptist. So in light of that, Christ in verse 11, on verse 20, begins to denunciate those people in that area. And let's read that again, verses 20 through 24, please. Now, thank you, Dan. I mentioned this last week. This is probably one of the most serious verses in Scripture. And we see some very serious and fearful words coming out of the mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, please understand something, folks. Jesus loves sinners. I'm very glad he does. Yeah. But will Jesus ever gloss over sin? He cannot. Because he is holy, holy, holy. And of course, we're talking in the area of Galilee. Decapolis is the area where there are about ten cities there. There are only a few mentioned here. And he begins to bring charges against some cities where most of his mighty works were done. Dan, you just read verse 20 a moment ago, and uh, Matthew tells us, because they repented not. What does it mean to repent? Okay, ask forgiveness. That's part of it. That's only part of it, though. Do what now? Okay, stop. The word repent is really a military term. It's it's about face. What does that mean? You turn around. You're walking one direction. You make an about face. You spin around and you go the other direction. Uh, the Greek word is metaneo. It revolves. It includes the changing, the revolving of the mind. So it's a change that has to take place. Now I find it kind of interesting. I was listening to some clips today of some of our so-called super preachers of the day. And uh, one of them pled plainly that it's not his job to tell people to repent. They know what they're doing wrong. I've got one word for that. That's hogwash. People need to hear repentance preached. Did Jesus preach repent? Yes. So the reason he calls her hand and charges him with his sin, because they did not repent. So again, he doesn't gloss over their perversity. He doesn't try to sweep it under the rug. He says, you are sinful because you refuse to repent. You refuse to change. He refused to turn around and do an about face. Now, again, this is, a, I think, a solemn reminder 
that God does not ignore human responsibility. He doesn't ignore that. And he does not excuse man's sinful impotency. In fact, he held them deeply accountable and he blamed them. It's your fault that you lack spiritual strength because you refuse to repent. And as you read through the New Testament, you'll find that the preaching of John the Baptist or John the Baptist or whatever word you want to use was repentance. Jesus preached repentance, and the apostles preached repentance. That being said, what should be preached today? Same thing. God's word has not changed. And the thing was, they preached repentance, even the apostles, because their goal was to prevail with the people that they might change their mind, change their ways, make an about face, and leave their sins, and turn to God. But Jesus says, you wouldn't allow us to bring you to that place in your life. You refuse to repent. Now remember, I mentioned this last week, he didn't say because you believe not, because a lot of them had some kind of faith. Some believed that he was a teacher come from God. And by the way, you know what? Nicodemus said that. But you know what Jesus told Nicodemus? You must be born again. That's not just enough. That's not enough. And again, they are being charged with this because they did not repent. And whatever faith they may have had, it didn't lead to the transforming of their hearts, and it didn't lead to lives that are reformed. Folks, true repentance will lead to a change in our life. The Apostle Paul would write to the church of Corinth, we have two letters preserved for us. Many believe he wrote a third letter that is not in existence. But in the second letter, Paul says... I am sorry. I'm not sorry I made you sorry. He had chided him in the first letter. He said, but I am sorry that your sorrow didn't lead to repentance. And Paul said, a godly sorrow leads to repentance. So whatever's going on in that area of Chorazin and uh, Capernaum there, Whatever was going on in their walk with what they thought was faith didn't go far enough because they refused to repent. Now remember, and let me ask in a form of a question, does God delight in people going to hell? No. What's he want? He wants us all to go to heaven. It's his heartbeat that we would repent and come to him. And it's it's interesting here. The reason he preaches to them, he's hoping that they would indeed recognize where they were and repent and turn around. And now he has to charge them with the fact that they refused to be healed. The fact of the matter is, and it's very clear, I think, at least implied, a lot of these people had heard him preach. A lot of them heard, saw the miracles he did. In fact, he said he did more in that area than anywhere else. But the fact of the matter was, if they didn't change, they're headed for hell. And he was preaching, hoping. But the problem was, he upbraided them because they refused to be healed. 
Now, again, what it made, what made it really bad were the miracles they did there. What they saw. <laughs> and again, he lived in Capernaum a lot during this time there in Galilee. And they saw this. And so God had given them a wonderful opportunity. In fact, Capernaum bragged about that. They said, we're, we've been elevated to heaven. Look who lives here. But God says, you'll be brought down to hell because you refuse to repent. And by the way, do you realize that the Bible says it rains on the just and the unjust? Certain parts of our earth receive more rainfall than others. Certain countries have been favored with clear gospel preaching, even more outpouring the Spirit than others. But God holds us accountable for what we know. Go to Luke 12, verse 48. Are you in Luke 12, 48? Well, get there, Dan. <laughs> Luke 12, 48. Anybody find that yet? Thank you, Dan. Anybody here completely understand God? Anybody? Brother Paul and I were talking before church tonight about that topic. And those few times in my life I begin to think I begin to grasp on this thing, I realize I just scratched on the surface. Now the first thing we've got to realize God is sovereign. What's that mean? How much in charge? Yeah. And he does what? There you go. Anything, whenever he wants to. And so we have to realize that God is sovereign in the distribution of gifts, of his gifts, both natural and spiritual. But he also says, here in Luke 12, unto whosoever much is given... Guess what? Much is required. Now again, God is God and there's no one like Him. And the problem we have, we want to define God how we want Him to be. Isn't it true? Uh, again, I say a lot, but my dad, he needs to be saved. He doesn't understand why God would allow somebody to execute his three sons, like what happened in Claremont County a month or so ago. Or when, he, when someone is born with a disability or something bad happens. You see, the problem is this, folks. God is God. He is who he is, and I or anyone else has no right to define God. We don't have a right to say, God, here's how you have to be. The only choice we have is to either believe in God or what? Or not. That's it. God is who he is. And no wonder Isaiah said his ways are past finding out. They are. Now I'm glad there's something we can know about God. But we are told something here that's very important. Those who have 
greater opportunities are going to have greater obligations. And the more opportunity we have to hear from God, to hear about God, the stronger the incentive is going to be to repent. And the more serious non-repentance is going to be. But understand something, folks. There will be a day of reckoning. And guess who, who will escape that? No one. And we can argue with God all we want. God, you should do it this way. You should do it that way. But most of all, God, you should do it my way. And guess what God says? That's not your choice. That is not your choice. It's interesting. There in Matthew 11, Jesus did specifically make note of his mighty works among them. But please understand, folks, God is doing mighty works among us today. And just as he held them accountable, guess what? He's going to hold us accountable. He's going to hold us accountable. Go back to verse 21 again, Matthew 11. Wow. Now, I realize that for most of us, uh, Tyre and Sider are not nearly as familiar as Sodom and Gomorrah. We, we know more about that. Uh, but Tyre and Sidon were two sister cities, very wicked. Uh, the king of Tyre in Ezekiel is compared to Satan. And he speak, God speaks to him and he says, you've exalted yourself to heaven, but guess what? I will bring you down to hell. And so, while there's two applications there, God is initially applying it to the king of Tyre and Sidon. A wicked, horrible king. And they refused to repent. And of course, God did bring them down to hell. He destroyed those cities. And now he's in Israel, northern Israel. He's in Galilee. And he says to them very clearly, if the people of Tyre and Sidon had the privilege to see what you see, what would they have done? They would have repented in sackcloth and ashes. They would have repented. In fact, he said long ago. Now, by the way, how many know that Jesus didn't come to condemn the world? You know why? John said in chapter 3, verse 17, the world is condemned already. Christ came into the world to give out blessing. <laughs> but if we despise his person, that's who he is. If we reject his authority... And we, how should I put this, ignore his mercies. The only thing left from him is horrible, horrible judgment. And I want to tell you folks, that's not preached in too many churches today. In fact, in a lot of churches in America today, they want you to come to church and feel good when you come and what else? Feel good when you leave. Feel good while you're there. They don't preach about sin or guilt or conviction. No point in doing that. 
I was listening. listening. I, I forget the, I should have took note of the preacher. You, you love this story. Anyway, him and a group of the congregation went to visit an, another church. It might have been for a special service. I don't know. Because it's a small 10-minute clip. And as he stood there on the stage that day with that pastor, and that would be a lady pastor, he said in front of everybody, he said, those who are here from, from our church, I want you to know when I got here last night, she was very cordial. She was very kind to me. Her staff bent over backwards to make sure that my accommodation were good and they were kind and they were cordial. So while we were here, while we are here, we will show them respect. But when she starts preaching, don't believe a word that comes out of her mouth. Good stuff. Because he realized that gospel, the truth of the gospel was not being preached there. I'd like to know how that service ended that day, by the way. It's a short clip that I saw. But the sad thing is we don't hear that preached anymore today. It's just something we don't hear too often. Master's men on, on yeah Monday night, Jeremy did a great job with our lesson. I'd encourage you to come out for that, if you would, please. And We need some more men to come out, but we talked about having courage. And Brother Bill said he would like to stand up about noon on Sunday and tell me it's time to quit if he only had the courage. I'm kidding, Brother Bill, okay? Well, we talked a little bit about that. But the problem is, the problem is, and I even mentioned it, one of the things that I, I, I think is short in my life, I really don't like confrontation. I, I'll do anything to avoid it. Uh, some years ago, I was out on visitation with a brother in Christ, and, and there was a certain part of doctrine we didn't agree with, and we both knew it. And he asked me one day, he said, what do you think about this? And I said, brother, if you don't want to know, don't ask me. Because if you ask me, and not me, I'm going to tell you why I believe what I believe, and it'll come from the Word of God. But I, I just don't like confrontation. So a lot of times, a preacher will deliberately take the line of least resistance because a lot of times, and and this is a danger I deal with all the time, we want to please the pew. We want to make people happy. And so we try to hold back on what doesn't taste good and what is not very popular. Now, by the way, people are deceived if a sentimental Christ is substituted for the biblical Christ. Now, don't miss that. I mean, we love the Christmas story, the baby born in the manger, but is he he still a baby in a manger? No. He's Lord of Lord and he's King of Kings. We love to talk about the Beatitudes, about being blessed by God in Matthew 5. And we emphasize those. But then in Matthew 23, we sort of ignore the woes, the judgments that are going to come. And to sort of magnify what was going on in that culture there in northern Israel... to magnify their sin of impentance, Christ said, look, you are worse. Those who live in Chorazin, those who are in Bethsaida, Jesus said, you're worse at heart than the Gentiles you hate and despise. Now, by the way, this is northern Israel. If you went in for the northern, that gets where you stepped into Gentile territory. 
And they despised and hated Gentiles so bad, if they walked over into their country before they came back to Israel, what did they do? They wiped the dust off of their feet. They hated them. And Jesus says, you are worse than them. Whew, we. How many friends does that, how many friends does that get you? Not many. But folks, Christ was not interested in winning friends. He wasn't interested in filling pews. He was interested in people repenting and going to heaven for eternity. And guess what he's interested in today? The very same thing. And he emphasized the fact of the matter was, if Tyre and Sidon had enjoyed the privileges that you enjoyed, they would have repented a long time ago in sackcloth and ashes. And those were Gentile cities. So Jesus said, hey, let me tell you something. The blessings you rejected would have been welcome in that day if they'd have heard what you heard. And the sad thing in Christianity some of the blessings we despise would be welcome in parts of the heathen world. We are so blessed. What is our what is our capability of uh, solving every difficulty? What is our capability of solving every difficulty? How capable are we of doing that? How capable are we of fully understanding even the entirety of a subject like this? Do we know other people's hearts? No. Guess who does? Jesus does. Jesus does. So he knew their hearts of those there in Galilee. And he knew how hard their hearts were. And how they refused to repent. Now, by the way, if Christ cannot soften a heart, who can? Nobody can. Nobody can. So Jesus says, because you refuse to repent, in spite of what you've been privileged to enjoy, your condemnation is going to be worse than it was for Tyre and Sight. Now, I do want to take a footnote here. Again, we're not nearly as familiar with Tyre and Sidon as we always talking about, but they were. They knew exactly what Jesus was talking about. Now, also understand, uh, on one hand, this passage doesn't stand alone. Back in Ezekiel chapter 3, God told Ezekiel the kind of people he was sending him to prophesy to. Look at verses 6 and 7. Look what God said about that. Now, it's kind of interesting. God says to Ezekiel, I want you to understand something, Ezekiel. I'm not sending you to a foreign people. 
a people who have a strange speak, which is different than you speak, or even a difficult language that you don't even understand. I'm not sending you there. I'm sending you to your own people. I'm sending you to the people of Israel. And God said, Ezekiel, if I would have sent them to the foreigner, surely they would have listened to you. But he said, Isaiah, the the house of Israel is not going to listen to you. Why? Because they won't listen to me. Because they are hard-hearted. Wow. Now remember, God says, here's where I'm sending you. If, you're, if I'm Isaiah, I'm thinking what? Don't send me there, Lord. Send me somewhere else. And so, as bad as that was in Ezekiel's days, how much more serious... How much more awful are the words of Christ when he announced doom on that highly favored, blessed city of Capernaum? Go back to Matthew 11, verse 23 and 24. Wow. Now remember, Jesus lived at Capernaum almost the entire public ministry he had in Galilee. And so we might say it was one of the most favorite, highly privileged spots on all the earth. They were exalted to heaven in their own mind. And this was an unspeakable privilege. And because of that privilege, they had been lifted heavenly. But the bottom line was, their hearts were so earthbound, they scorned even a blessing like that. And so Jesus says, you will be brought down to hell. Now remember, the greater the advantages, the more fearful the doom of those who scorned it. And Jesus called their hand. The higher the elevation, that's where Capernaum was, the more fatal the fall. You shall be brought down to hell. Now here's here's the kicker. Capernaum was an honorable city. But guess who Jesus compared them with? What kind of city were they? Oh, horrible. In fact, where were they? Where are they now? They're gone. Because of the judgment of God. And we know the story. Because of their awful sin, God destroyed them with fire and brimstone. And remember, Capernaum was mainly where he lived as he entered his public ministry. Capernaum was a city where many of his miracles, a lot of his healings took place. And they saw it happen before their very eyes. And yet those who lived there were so often, they were so caught up in their sins. They refused to come to him to have their souls 
healed. And again, in the comparison, Jesus said, if I did those kind of works in Sodom and Gomorrah, it would have had a positive effect on them, and Sodom and Gomorrah would still be in existence. I don't remember exactly when it was the first time I've heard it said by other preachers. I've heard it said several times through the years. If God doesn't judge America, he may have to go back and apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, we know that's not going to happen. He didn't make a mistake then. He won't make one now. But it tells us how awful our country is. Matthew 11, verse 24. Thank you, Dan. Now, let's suppose for a moment, we can only be subjective here. In that day and time, if you were to ask any Jew of two of the most horrible cities that ever existed, what are the two they would probably say? Sodom and Gomorrah. And Jesus says, on the day of judgment, it's going to be better for them than it is for you. I need to ask, folks, are those serious words? Absolutely. And folks, even though it's not being preached today, the world needs to know judgment day is coming. Judgment day is coming. Romans 2.5. So we're gathering against ourselves. Those who are unsaved are gathering their wrath of God. Same chapter, verse 16. What does it mean when it says that he will judge the secrets of men? He knows everything about us. Ecclesiastes 12, verse 14. Ecclesiastes 12, 14. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. So what about the person who thinks they're getting by with it? They're not. God knows he can bring everything in the judgment. Second Peter two nine. What does God know how to do? To reserve the unjust on the day of judgment to be punished. There's coming a day. When the wrath of God's judgment, he will give to every person according to their deeds. Will he make a mistake? No. He will judge our secrets and he will bring every work to judgment. The punishment will be given out. And it will be given in the proportion to the opportunities that people had and rejected. It will be given according to the privileges that folk had and scorned. It will be given to the light that God shed and man put the light out. But understand, folks, it will be an intolerable time of doom for those who have rejected 
what God has tried to declare to them. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, it's, we don't have the verse on our overhead, by the way. It's appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the, the judgment. That's why we must continue to preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's stop there for tonight. Well, let me, one more verse, okay? Matthew eleven twenty-five. Marvin, you mentioned this earlier today. We talked on the phone. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them unto babes. Now, by the way, this verse is not isolated. It's connected to the verses previous. Connect the clauses. We're going to pick it up there last next week, not last week, next week, Lord willing. And if he comes, we'll just sit at Jesus' feet and, and wonder, okay? Let's take a few moments tonight. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.